Let's open our Bibles to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. We're just going to look at the first six verses today because we're going to take communion this morning. And so there's a lot to go through here. Um, But I don't want to take too long in these chapters. But there's a lot here, honestly. And uh, it's worth looking at. Of course it is. Uh, If nothing else, you know, it it encourages us as we open the Word of God and we read it and we, we see that the Bible had already talked about these things in the Old Testament. In fact, the topic we're looking at this morning in Revelation 20 is the millennial reign of Christ. And what I find interesting about this is that there's more information, believe it or not, in the Old Testament than there is in the New Testament concerning the millennial reign of Christ. You know, we'll look at passages this morning in Ezekiel and Zechariah and Isaiah that speak more of the, uh, the millennial reign than these six verses that we're looking at this morning. And so John briefly tells us, he tells us, and in fact, he gives us the time frame. In the Old Testament, it was unclear, uh, or it was unknown, actually, to the prophets, and God chose not to tell them the time frame. But here in Revelation is the only place where we find that it's a literal thousand years. That's why we call it a millennium. In the, in the Latin, it's milli, which is a thousand. And so in Chilion, I think, is another, uh, another phrase or another uh, word that means the same thing. It's a literal, a literal thousand years. I believe that God says what he means, and he means what he says. And even though the Bible, especially the book of Revelation, we've been going through it, and even though there are some, there's symbols in it, certainly, there's a lot of similes. Something was like this or as this. We get that through the speech. We can understand that that's what we're talking about. When the, when the Bible speaks of a specific number and it repeats it, actually, in these verses that we're looking at this morning, six times in verse 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7, it tells us a thousand years. So I'm thinking to myself, it must be... 99 years? No, a thousand years. Repeat it after me. It's a thousand years. Yes, a thousand years. So let's read it. Revelation 20, verse 1 through 6. It says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up, uh, and shut uh, and shut him up, and set a seal on him, so that he could not deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead, they did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection, and blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection over such, the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. A thousand years. And so yet last week we talked about the second coming of Jesus Christ to the earth. A physical coming to the earth. Jesus setting foot on the earth. And, and, and now this morning we're going to be looking at the... The thousand-year reign of Christ, the millennial reign. And at this point, you remember when Jesus came back, he defeated those armies of the Antichrist and those who are coming against Jerusalem. He defeats them. He rescues the, the remnant from Petra. We saw that in Isaiah 63. And then he goes up to the Valley of Jehoshaphat, the Valley of Decision, which is that valley, that great valley that stretches all the way from Megiddo up in the north, all the way down to Jerusalem. It's a great valley. It's a wonderful valley, actually. Very lush and beautiful. And Jesus steps foot on the Mount of Olives, right opposite uh, on the east of the, from the Temple Mount, on the Mount of Olives. And, the, and, the, and Zechariah tells us that it's going to split in two. And Jesus is going to begin his millennial reign after he defeats his enemies. And it told us yes, or, uh, yesterday, last week, 
that one of the first, the first two beings that the Lord takes and casts into eternal flame, everlasting flame, is the beast who is the Antichrist and the false prophet. And they are in that lake of fire forever, and it's torment forever. It's not a small amount of time. It, it goes forever. And so, but he leaves one being out, Satan himself, the honcho, the head honcho of all the demons. He holds on to him. I believe the Lord is going to save the best to last, or maybe it'd be better to save the worst to last. God is going to deal with him, but he's going to give him a time to be locked up for a thousand years. We're going to see that this morning. And then afterwards, he's going to be released for a little season, and we'll talk about um, why that possibly is. We know one of the answers is right here in the scripture, so he won't deceive the nations, but I want to uh, share with you one other thing that uh, is a conjecture, but it's something I believe is probably true. But let's look at verse 1. And so it says, I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit. And notice it's just an angel. It's not even Michael or, or any one of the other angels. Notice there's no mention of the name. The Bible mentions four angels in the Bible. We know uh, Lucifer was uh, an archangel, we believe, a very powerful angel who deceived himself and became uh, who we call now Satan. There's Gabriel, there's Michael, and there's also in Revelation 19 this character, this leader or ruler over the demons, over that, uh, the abyss, and his name was Abaddon or Apollyon. And that could be the devil himself, it could be a very high-ranking angel, we don't know. But, but notice, there's no mention of the name of this angel. He just comes, and he takes hold of the angel, or takes hold of Satan, and I wonder... How humiliating this would be for Lucifer, the devil, having had such great power, and now God just looks around in his throne room, and he looks over in the back, and he goes, yeah, you right there. Uh, I got a job for you to do. Can you grab that chain? I want you to go and shackle him. I want you to go take care of business. Me? I get to do that? Yeah, yeah, you. I know you haven't done anything in a while, but um, now it's your turn, and Michael and Gabriel are going, oh. I wanted to do that. I wanted that privilege, but it's an angel, just an angel. And think of how infuriating that must be. And think of the pride of Satan. That's one of the things that got him into so much trouble was his pride. And now he's going to be taken down by some angel that doesn't even have a name, but very powerful nonetheless. And in fact, in Ezekiel, we find some um, Ezekiel and Isaiah. We're going to look at a few scriptures here where it talks about the demise of of the devil. Now, I would just have you write these scriptures down because because of time, I'm just going to read them to you and we're going to get right to it, okay? But in Ezekiel 28, uh, Ezekiel through, or God through Ezekiel, excuse me, is speaking to the king of Tyre, but you can quickly see that God is addressing somebody other than the king of Tyre, perhaps the power behind the throne of the king of Tyre. Notice what it says in verse 11 in Ezekiel 28. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You are the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Now was the king of Tyre ever in Eden? No, he never was. Eden, they don't even know where Eden is now. Somewhere over there in Iraq or somewhere in that area, we don't really know for sure. But he certainly wasn't in the Garden of Eden, and he certainly wasn't full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. He says, you were in Eden, the Garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, a beautiful, beautiful being. The sardius, topaz, diamond, beryl, onyx, jasper, sapphire, turquoise, emerald, with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you in the day you were created. A very musical being, a very beautiful being. Lucifer is a light bearer. That's literally what his name means. And it says... Uh, you were the anointed cherub who covers, and I established you, God says, and you were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created. Remember that, underline that when you get to that verse. Satan was a created being. He's not equal with Jesus. He's not equal with God. He is a created being. So no more of this yin and yang stuff that somehow they balance each other out and they're, you know, they're just opposites, polar opposites. No. There is one who's sovereign, and everybody else has been created. Got me? The devil was created. 
It says it right there in Ezekiel 28. He was created, and your heart was lifted up because of your beauty, pride. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor, and I cast you to the ground, and I laid you bare before kings that, that they might gaze at you. And that, that chapter goes on and on. Let me share with you something in Ezekiel 24. I'm sorry, Isaiah 24, excuse me. Beginning in verse 21. What does Isaiah say concerning this being, this demonic being who corrupted himself? It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord will punish on high the host of exalted ones. Isn't that what Satan said? We're going to look at this next. He says, I will be like the Most High. I will be like God Almighty. He was lifted up in pride. And so God says, the Lord will punish on high the host of exalted ones and on the earth, the kings of the earth. They will be gathered together as prisoners are gathered in the pit and will be shut up in the prison. After many days, they will be punished. Sounds like the devil and his angels, which certainly that is their lot. That is what is decreed for them. Satan will be locked up, as we read, for a thousand years. While you and I, the saints, oh, when the saints, oh, when the saints, oh, when the saints go marching in, oh, how I want to be in that number, when the saints go marching in. Love that. You and I are going to march in, but not this one. He is going to be shackled by an unnamed angel and taken down to the abyss, the abuso, to the bottomless pit. And notice, in Isaiah 14, this is the one you're very familiar with, God speaking through the prophet, speaking to Lucifer, How are you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How are you cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations? You who said in your heart, and here's the five I wills, here's the the proud manifesto of Satan, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. And God's reply to him is, yet you shall be brought down to hell. You shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. We just read it in Revelation 20 here. Those who see you will gaze at you and they'll consider you saying, is this the man who made the earth tremble and who shook kingdoms? We're going to be looking at this being and say, is this the one that caused all the trouble? The guy with the skinny jeans? Is that who caused all this trouble? This, this, really, this one? And God is going, yeah. I gave him that power, and it was without repentance. I knew what he was going to do. He had every opportunity to turn, as did Judas, but he did not. He continued in his corruption and his pride and corrupted himself and exalted himself above me even. Go figure. That's like a, an F-250 coming off the line at Ford and exalting itself above the Ford Motor Company. You didn't make me. Oh, yes, I did. No, you didn't. Yes, I did. Behold the parts in the assembly line. I made you. No, you didn't. Whatever. <laughs> right? But notice, he goes and he says, Who made the world as a wilderness and destroyed its cities? Who did not open the house of his prisoners? Down in verse 19 it says, But you are cast out of your grave like an abominable branch, like the garment of those who are slain, thrust through with a sword, who go down to the stones of the pit like a corpse trodden underfoot. God is going to deal with this being, Satan. And we're seeing it here in this chapter that we're looking at. In fact, this passage in Isaiah could, could have a double or even triple fulfillment. We know that God cast Satan down. We know that near the midpoint of the great tribulation period in Revelation chapter 12, you remember that uh, Satan was cast down. We also know in the current passage we're looking at right now, this angel with a great chain shackles him. 
Whether it's a physical chain, we don't know. It doesn't really matter. But whatever chain it is, whatever restraining device that it is, it's something that God made and he can do with it whatever he wants and how and to whom he wants. He is able to do that. And also, it could refer also to when Satan is finally and ultimately cast in the lake of fire. We're going to see that next week when he is finally dealt with and he's placed in that place of the lake of fire where the beast and the false prophet are located. You remember in Revelation chapter 12, it says, And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his, and this is somewhere in the midpoint of the tribulation, which we've already looked at. But war broke out. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, who we know as Satan. And the dragon and his angels, these demons, they fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found any more in heaven any longer. And so the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the the earth and his angels were cast out with him so that happens somewhere in the midpoint of the tribulation and it may surprise you to know that satan has access to the throne of god even right now because we know these events are yet future to us but we know that he has access to the throne of god even right now he's a, the accuser of the brethren when you sin satan is the one standing up in front of him going did you see what he did he claims to be one of yours, and look what he did. Did you see what he did? And the Lord goes, yeah, I did, I saw it. And I also know something else that you don't know, Satan, and that is when he did that, he fell on his knees and he cried out for the blood of Christ, my son, to forgive him. And guess what? My promise is still true that if he confesses his sins, I will be faithful to forgive him and cleanse him from all unrighteousness. So have a nice day. He is the accuser of the brethren, Accusing you and I before God day and night. Can't believe he did that, Lord. Did you hear what came out of his mouth? Did you see what he did? Yeah, I saw what he did. Next week we'll see Satan finally, finally sent to his final resting place for all of eternity We'll see it in Revelation in, next, uh, in, in verse 10. It says, The devil who deceived them, he's finally going to be cast in a lake of fire or brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. And notice, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. It will never end. It will never end. And it was created for them specifically, for the devil and his angels. That's what Matthew tells us. Matthew 25. It says, This place was created for them specifically. See, God doesn't send people to hell. They make a decision while they have breath in them. They make a decision through their life where they are going to spend eternity. And I, I believe all of you have made that decision for Christ, and I pray that you have. And it's important that you do. You must be born again. That's why Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. You cannot wait any longer. If there's any doubt in your mind, you must put it to rest today and give your heart to Christ. Otherwise, why play Russian roulette with yourself? Why be in jeopardy every day? As soon as you get behind the wheel of that car, you don't know if you're going to make it home. You don't know. And then you're launched into eternity with a decision that you've made. Some to everlasting life, some to everlasting condemnation. We'll see that in John 5 a little bit later. What's it going to be for you? Everlasting life with Jesus or everlasting condemnation. And again, God is so loving. He doesn't send people there. He gives you the choice that you've made. Do you understand it? It's all on us. It's all on us. And he gives you that opportunity. He gives you that free will to make those decisions. Choose Christ. Choose life. Isn't that what it says in Deuteronomy? Choose life. I've, I've set before you life and death. Choose life. And I think that's a really great message today for all those abortion doctors. And ladies, if you found yourself with child, there are so many other opportunities for that child. You don't need to abort that child. Choose life, says the Lord, right? Not even me. I don't say it. I'm, who am I? But when God says something, we better listen. Choose life. And the reason this angel is coming down from heaven is because at this point in the, in the program, in Revelation, where is the devil? He's on the earth, because we know he got cast out in, in chapter 12 earlier. 
So now he's on the earth and he's full of rage. What does Peter tell us? Be sober, be vigilant. Your adversary, the devil, what is he doing? He's walking about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour, even right now. Satan evidently isn't, he, he can go he, many places. He can go on the earth, he can go up to heaven, but there's coming a time in the future, we read it in Revelation 12, where he's finally going to be kicked out of heaven and he's not going to be permitted to come back in. So guess where his only place to hang out is? <laughs> earth. I wonder where he's going to make, his re- make up his residence. Probably Manhattan. We don't know what it's like to have the devil confined on the earth. To be just here. He can roam. Right now he's got mobility, but there's coming a time when his mobility is going to be hampered and diminished. Notice that this angel has the key to the bottomless pit. The word is the abyss, the abuso. It is the place of the wicked, the wicked spirits, the very abode of the demons and the devil himself. And this is a place where he is going to be confined. He is going to be confined, and this angel has a great chain. Again, we don't know if it's a physical chain. It doesn't really matter what it's made of. It could be like Wonder Woman. It could be that that gold band, you know. Who knows what it is? But whatever it is, it is going to be sufficient to shackle this being who has tormented millions and billions of people, trillions of people in his diabolical career. He's going to be shackled by this angel. If you remember in Job, what does it say in Job? It says there was a day when the, and this is the oldest book in the Bible, we believe. Now there was a day when the sons of God, these angels, uh, fallen angels actually, came to present themselves before the Lord to give an account. And Satan also was among them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? And Satan answered, you know, I'm going to and fro on the earth, walking and walking back and forth on it. And the Lord says, have you considered my servant Job? You've been looking pretty hard, Satan. Have you considered the, the man who I, I, I deem as a trophy of my love and grace? A man who eschews evil, he, he turns away from evil. There is none like him in all the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. Have you considered him? And I can imagine if Job heard that conversation going on, he'd be like, don't choose me, pick somebody else. But God knew the end of the story, didn't it? Is he omniscient? Does he know all things? I think he does. Did he know the end of Job? Yes, he did. He knew what was going to happen on the other side of the trials and the tribulations that were going to be coming upon Job. And God allowed it. He allowed it. And what happened? You know, God allowed Satan to just wreak havoc on his family. He allowed him to. And even to touch his body, he said, but you can't kill him. Notice the limits, the limitations. Even right now, the devil is like a a dog on a leash. He can only do so much, and he has to ask for permission, and God knows. And God allows these things, what, to destroy us? No, to bring us to an end of ourselves. And did that happen to Job? You better believe it. Was his faith and courage at the end? Did he know God at the end better than at the beginning? Yes, he did. In fact, he even confessed it. I've heard, you know, I've heard all these things about you, God, but now I see. Because I've been through it. I've experienced experientially walk through this and I've seen it. But he laid hold of the dragon, that old serpent. Notice the dragon. In Revelation, let me go to this one here. In Revelation 12, verse 9, we see the very first mention of this, of the dragon being the serpent of old, the devil and Satan. We know the serpent of old. He's not only a dragon, but he's a serpent. You recall in Genesis, the serpent speaking to Eve. To me, that'd be a really crazy thing. I wonder if animals back at that time were able to communicate in ways that they, they aren't now. And so it wasn't a big deal for a serpent to speak to Eve. Notice she didn't go freak out and go to the R-wing because some animal was speaking to her. She it seemed very normal. And the serpent speaks to her and he says, Yea, has God said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? <clears throat> for he knows that when you do, you shall be like him. 
knowing good and evil. And she was deceived. He's the serpent of old. He's also the devil, the diabolos or diabolos. He is a slanderer, an accuser. He is Satan, who is a, uh, the prince of the spirits. He's the one who is opposing the accuser. And notice that he bound him for a thousand years. A thousand years. There's a basic rule of Bible interpretation, and that says, when the first sense makes sense, don't go looking for any other sense. And six times in this chapter it says a thousand years. So it is a thousand years. Just take it like it because God doesn't, he doesn't lie to you. He doesn't try to confuse you. It's a literal thousand years. But the millennium will be a glorious time, especially for you and I, the redeemed of the saints. It'll be a wonderful time for us because we will be in our new bodies. When the rapture occurs, the Bible tells us that the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we that are alive and remain, our bodies, just like those who are already dead in the grave, they will receive a new body, and they will be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air, in the clouds, and forever we will be with the Lord. But our bodies will be changed. Our bodies will be changed, outfitted for eternity you know, you and I, if we're fortunate and we eat really well and we eat, you know, uh, nuts and berries and, 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 and get on the Peloton every day and, and do all those things, we might live, you know, longer. Some people don't. It's kind of ironic. You get the guy, this is the irony of life, isn't it? There's guys who smoke all their life like a bayonet, you know, they're smoking, you know, a pack, two packs of cigarettes a day. They live to be 103, and the guy who's 40 years old dies of cancer, and he's the guy who's on the treadmill and has got the, you know, the six-pack abs and the nice haircut and the great job, and as fit as a, a whistle, you know. And yet the person who is smoking like a chimney is living for 102 years. Doesn't seem hardly fair. But we will be in new bodies, outfitted for eternity. Can't get sick. Can't get COVID-19. The news is not going to come on and say, there's a new virus from China. This one's really bad, too. This one's going to just knock you out. As soon as you get it, two minutes, you're dead. No problem in the millennium. You're like, bring it on. (laughs) Bring it on. But there are some characteristics of the millennium that are uh, worth looking at right now, and I thought we could do that. The first thing is, is that it's going to be a time of, uh, of the resurrection of the just. We know that there's going to be a resurrection. We call it the first resurrection. The first resurrection is actually, a, uh, it comes in phases or stages. It's the first resurrection. And blessed are those who are in that first resurrection. And we'll look at uh, that a little bit. But it's going to be a time of also regeneration. We know that in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus said to his disciples, he said, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, and he was speaking about the millennial reign, and you know that because he says this. He says, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So guess what? We have the disciples. They are going to be judging the 12 tribes of Israel in the millennial reign. It's a time of regeneration. Also, Jesus will be ruling and reigning with King David in some capacity. We know that Jesus will be reigning, but we also know that he's going to allow David, because David, at the beginning of the uh, uh, millennial reign, Somewhere in that period, the Old Testament saints are going to be resurrected and receive their new bodies, including Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses, and David. And David, because he was such a faithful man, even though he had made mistakes, God is going to set him up in the millennial reign to have some official capacity. And that may sound a little odd to you, and maybe that's the first time you've ever heard it, but let me read to you in Ezekiel 34. It says, therefore, the Lord says, the Lord, uh, says the Lord God to them, he says, behold, I myself will judge between the fat and the lean sheep because you have pushed the, with the side and the shoulder, butted all the weak ones with your horns and scattered them abroad. Therefore, I will save my flock and they shall be no longer a prey and I will judge between sheep and sheep. And notice in verse 23 of Ezekiel 34, I will establish one shepherd over them. Now, remember when Ezekiel is prophesying this. He is in Babylon with Judah. 
You know, sometime around, somewhere between 606 B.C. to 537 B.C., that's when he's alive, that's when he's writing this. Now, how long has David been dead in the grave? About four or 500 years, at least 400 years. But notice what he says. I will establish one shepherd over them, because he's speaking of a future event. I will establish one shepherd over them, and he shall feed them. My servant David, he shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, Jehovah, will be their God, and my servant David, a prince among them, I, the Lord, have spoken. And then in Ezekiel 37, Verse 21, it says, Then say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Surely I will take the children of Israel from among the nations, wherever they have gone, and I will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land. Now we see that happening right now, but we know that there's going to be a greater fulfillment of that in the millennial reign. Notice what he says, And I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king over them all. They shall be no longer two nations, nor shall they be divided into two kingdoms again. They shall not defile themselves any more with their idols, nor with their detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions, but I will deliver them from all their dwelling places in which they have sinned and will cleanse them. Then they shall be my people and I will be their God. And notice, David, my servant, will be king over them. David, King David. He's going to be resurrected in the millennium and God is going to set him as king. Now he is going to be the king of kings. He is going to be over all things, but it looks as if, and it appears that he's going to allow David to have some official capacity in that kingdom, and he's going to give him that. He's going to give him that authority. He's going to play a significant role in that. David, my servant, shall be king over them, and they shall have all one shepherd. They shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. Then they shall dwell in the land that I have given to Jacob, my servant, where your fathers dwell, and they shall dwell there, they, their children, their children's children, forever, and my servant David shall be their prince forever. <laughs> I don't know, that was a real eureka moment when that, when that, when that understanding came to me, that David, the one who made these huge mistakes, we read about them in, in Samuel. Adultery, murder, pride. Forgiven by God in glory right now and will be resurrected in the last day and God will put him in a place of prominence once again. I love that, don't you? I love that. And also the millennial temple will be built in the, in the millennial reign. We know that that's going to be a very prominent fixture in the millennium, is the millennial temple. Remember, we looked at that, and uh, we haven't really read Ezekiel chapters 40 through 47, but there's more written about this millennial temple in these chapters in Ezekiel 40 through 47 than any other place in the Bible. In fact, there's never been a temple built like that. There's actually something, someday I'll, I'll, I'll show you the, the difference between, uh, we, we actually went through that, I think, uh, several, a few months ago where we talked about the different temples. But this temple is going to dwarf any other temple that's ever been built. And the dimensions are very unique. It's never been built. Even the tribulation temple is going to be nothing compared to this temple that God describes to Ezekiel and he writes down. He describes the dimensions of it down to the minutiae. And how big it is, exactly how big it is. Uh, he's going to talk about the priesthood and the dividing of the land and the garments and the priests that are going to be serving there. The sons of Zadok that didn't go separate away from the Lord back in the days of King David. Those sons of Zadok are going to be there again serving the Lord as their reward for their faithful service when they were alive on the earth. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? And also, there's going to be a fountain that's going to issue from the temple threshold. We see it in Ezekiel 47. Notice what it says in verse 1 and 2. Then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and there was water flowing from under the threshold of the temple toward the east, which is toward the Dead Sea, or toward the Jordan River, going down to the Dead Sea, from the front of the temple, or, I'm sorry, excuse me, for the front of the temple faced east. The water was flowing from under the right side of the temple, south of the altar, and he brought me out by the way of the north gate and led me around on the outside side of the outer gateway that faces east and there was water running out on the right side. Zechariah tells it that tells us that it's also going out on the left side toward the west going toward the Mediterranean Sea. 
And notice what it says in Ezekiel going on. This is really awesome. If you've been to Israel, this is going to blow your mind. Because if you've been to the Dead Sea, you understand that nothing can live in that thing. Nothing is alive in the Dead Sea, hence the name. But notice what Ezekiel says about the the millennial rain and these waters that are going to gush from the Temple Mount. And there's actually geological surveys that they've done, and there's a a deep fissure. It's a crack, basically, in the limestone, way down deep underneath, and they know that crack is there. And it won't take much. When that earthquake happens, when Jesus sets his foot on the mount, or when he comes and and goes up to the Mount of Olives and that thing splits, believe me, that event is going to send this thing into a tizzy, and water is going to start to gush, and it's going to gush. At some point, it's going to gush. Notice, he says, When I returned there along the bank of the river, there were many trees on one side and the other. Then he said to me, This water flows toward the eastern region, goes down into the valley, and enters into the sea. And when it reaches the sea, its waters are healed. What sea is he talking about? Well, directionally, you know, he's speaking of the Dead Sea. It's dead, but it's going to be healed. Because fresh water is going to be coming out from the threshold, going to the east, down to the Jordan, flowing down into the Dead Sea, and it's going to go toward the west, all the way to the Mediterranean. And notice, they will be healed, and everything will live wherever the river goes. And it shall be that fishermen will stand by it from En Gedi. If you've been to En Gedi, you're standing at En Gedi looking at the Dead Sea. There it is. And fishermen, notice what he says. They will take places for spreading their nets. The fish will be the same kinds of fish in the, of the great sea, exceeding many. But at swamps and marshes will not be healed. So there'll be a portion of it, probably in the southern portion, that will still remain saltish and marshish. But the rest of it's going to be healed. And along the bank of the river on this side and that, all kinds of trees will be growing for food. Their leaves will not wither. Their fruit will, be, will not fail. They will bear fruit every month because their water flows from the sanctuary and their fruit will be for food and their leaves for medicine. Because remember, even though the millennial rain is going to be very different from anything we've ever experienced, there's still going to be other people who, have, who will come into the millennium in their natural bodies, unregenerate even. And they're going to need the healing. You and I won't so much because we'll have a new body, but there will be people who will need it still. And so they're going to be there. And Zechariah tells us in chapter 14, verse 8, in that, in that day the living water shall flow from Jerusalem. Notice a whole other prophet telling us the same thing, but he gives us a little more information. The living water shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea, which is the Dead Sea, half of them toward the Western Sea, which is the Mediterranean. Both summer and winter it shall occur. And notice, and the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day it shall be, the Lord is one and his name is one. And the land will be turned into a plain from Geba to Rimon. Jerusalem shall be raised up, no doubt from the seismic events that are going to be happening in that day. And the people shall dwell in it, and no longer shall there be utter destruction, but Jerusalem shall be safely inhabited for the first time in history, safe and sound. I like that, don't you? What wonderful characteristics, what wonderful things await us in the millennial reign. Old Testament saints, New Testament saints, Tribulation saints, we are all going to be there. And the curse of the earth will be lifted as well, we believe. Some may not call it the curse of the earth, but I think it's a pretty interesting thing. In Romans 8, it says, The earnest expectation of the creation right now eagerly awaits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who had subjected it in hope. But notice this, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. There's going to be something very unique about this millennial reign. Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 11, he says, the wolf, the wolf, the wolf, the wolf, wolf. <laughs> the wolf, <laughs> notice, notice how unique this time is going to be. And this is what we've got to look forward to. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. These are natural predators, that's like you going out in Southern California as a surfer and you're out there on your surfboard and there's a school of great white sharks. They're each about 17 feet long and they're all females. They're very hungry. 
and you're sitting out there on your, on your surfboard, and they're all surrounding you, and they're just like coming by, and you just tap their fin. They're like, oh, thanks, you know. <laughs> That's the way it's going to be. The wolf shall lay down with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the young lion with the fatling together. Are you kidding me? And a little child shall lead them. A cow and a bear shall graze. Their young ones shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child, check this out, shall play by the cobra's hole. And the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea and in that day there shall be a root of Jesse speaking of Jesus Christ spoken of us in, uh, um, earlier in the chapter who shall stand as a banner to the people for the Gentiles shall seek him and his resting place shall be glorious what a glorious time we've got to look forward to in Isaiah 35, beginning in verse 5, notice something else about this time. The eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped, the lame shall leap like a deer, the tongue of the dumb will sing, for water shall burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Streams in the desert, the parched ground will become a pool, the thirsty land springs of water. A highway shall be there and a road, and it shall be called the highway of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it, but it shall be for others. Now I'm just skipping down, verse 9, it says, No lion shall be there, nor there any ravenous beast go up on it. It shall, be, it shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And notice, and the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion, the king It'll come to Zion with singing, with everlasting joy on their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Boy, that sounds like a relief, doesn't it? I am so looking forward to that day. A thousand years on this earth. And for all of you, or any of those listening, or, or hear this on the radio later on, uh, if you're concerned about climate change, and that in you know, 12 years, if we don't stop our, you know, we're going to be flooded, the earth is going to flood, it's going to be you know, a big mess. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about global warming. Don't worry about climate change. I can tell you that with all of heaven on my side because of what we're reading now. A thousand years on this planet, folks. That means if the rapture occurred right now, a thousand and seven years, this earth is going to be just fine. Thank you very much. Remember that. Remember that. God has it all under control. There's nothing you can do. I mean, obviously, we're going to be good stewards. We're not going to burn tires out in our front yard. And who would want to do that anyway? But for those who are worried about the spotted owl and worried about, you know, the, this and that and the climate, no, we're going to die. And, the, the earth, you know, the waters are rising, you know, inches every year and we're going to die and Manhattan's going to be flooded. Praise God. Anyway, um, no, there's good people in Manhattan. There's a few. But, uh, sorry, that was judgmental on my part. Don't worry about those things. Don't worry about any of that. Don't worry. I won't go there. And there'll be relative peace. Relative peace, because what does it say in Isaiah? The word, it says now, uh, the word that uh, Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains, and it shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations will flow into it. It's going to be a time of peace. And notice down in verse 4 of that chapter, it says, God as Jesus is going to judge between the nations and rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. They're not going to learn war anymore. It's going to be a time of peace. Devil is going to be locked up for a thousand years. But does that mean that this time is going to be a, 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 a total utopia completely? Not really. It's going to be better than anything we've experienced. And because we'll be in our new bodies, you and I are going to be experiencing something quite a bit different than some of the people who came into the, or into the millennial reign. It's going to be better than anything we've seen. But it gets even better than that because after the thousand years, we know that a new heavens and a new earth are created. But Jesus will have to rule with a rod of iron. We saw that in, in Psalm 2, right? He's going to rule and, and reign with a rod of iron. 
He has to because there will be rebellion. Even though Satan will be locked up in chains, the natural man, apart from God, apart from being born again, is a rebel. And he is going to uh, still resist, but it will be quelled quickly. And maybe that will be our job. Maybe that will be something that we will be doing in the millennial reign, in our new bodies, keeping order according to his mandate and what he wants. Maybe that will be our job. And also, there's going to be feasts that will be observed in this time. And this may surprise you too. Because even in the millennial reign, even though Christ was the perfect sacrifice, there is only one sacrifice that is now acceptable. There will actually be sacrifices and feasts that will go on into the millennial reign. In Zechariah chapter 14, it says, And it will come to pass that everyone who was left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem, so he's talking about the cleanup operation from, the, uh, from Armageddon, all the nations will come which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of tabernacles. And it shall be that whichever of the families of the earth do not come up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, on them there will be no rain. If the family of Egypt will not come up and enter in, they will have no rain. They will receive the plague with which the Lord strikes the nations that do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. This is the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations that do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. In that day, holiness to the Lord shall be engraved on the bells of the horses. Can you imagine seeing that and hearing that? On the bells of the horses... The pots in the Lord's house shall be like the bowls before the altar. In Ezekiel 45, it says this, that in the first month, on the first day of the month, he shall take a young bull without blemish and cleanse the sanctuary with with an animal sacrifice. So these sacrifices are going to happen. They're going to celebrate the Passover in the millennial reign, and Jesus is going to be fine with it. Because it's going to be in memorial. It's not that it needs to be done, but it's going to happen in memorial. And we will remember forever what he did for us. Because he is the Passover lamb. There will be never a time where we'll be like, I don't remember what happened. No, it's going to be the Passover they're going to celebrate. It says in verse 21, in the first month, on the 14th day of the month, you will observe the Passover, a feast of seven days. He goes on and talks about these sacrifices, of sacrificing the lamb. These things are going to continue in the millennial reign. Now verse 3, back in our text, notice this angel, when he lassos the devil and he takes him and puts him in the pit, he's going to cast him into the bottomless pit and he's going to shut him up and he's going to set a seal upon him. A seal, the the Greek word is uh, sphragizo, it's the same seal that we get when we talk about a seal that a king would put on a letter that no one else could read under penalty of death. When uh, Uriah got the letter from David to give to Joab, that letter was sealed. Uriah wasn't supposed to open it up and he didn't, he was a faithful man. And he gave it to Joab, Joab read the letter and in the letter was put Uriah Uriah in the heat of the battle and then retreat from him. So that he dies. Sounds like a really great guy. Sounds like Uriah had more integrity than David at that point, didn't he? But that seal is something that is, uh, uh, it's irrevocable. It's, it's It's a very permanent seal. That's literally what it means. It's a seal that you and I have been placed upon us as the, uh, the seal of our redemption. In Second Corinthians it says, Now he who establishes us with you in Christ has anointed us and, and has anointed us as God, who also has sealed us unto, um, sealed unto us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee, as an earnest. A seal is something that when God saves you, when he sets his Spirit inside of you, takes up residence, he puts a, it's a seal. It can't be undone. Do you understand that? That's why we believe once you're saved, you are always saved. You may go through difficulty in life. You may even sin and make a mess of things. But if you confess your your sin, God is going to forgive you. And guess what? You're going to glory. You're going to heaven. If you gave your heart to Christ, you are his. In Ephesians 1, you're sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, 
who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. When he puts the down payment in us and then he says, I'm going to come back and redeem you unto myself at the rapture. And that's exactly what he does. He gives us the down payment and then he comes back for us bodily, changes us and takes us. I don't know about you. Is that exciting? To me, that's really exciting. Looking forward again to that day. It's the same seal that was placed upon those 144,000 Jews, preserved through the tribulation that they would not be hurt. And it says in verse 3, but after this thing, after this, um, after the seal is put on him, that he should not, and here's the thing, that he should deceive the nations no more until the thousand years were finished. But notice, after these things, he must be released for a season must be released for a little season. Did you ever wonder why? Why not just be done with him, Lord? Why not just, when you threw the false prophet and the Antichrist, and the, why didn't you just do it then? I think there might be something to this. And again, this is just my, my own conjecture. The Bible doesn't tell us implicitly. Could it be that God was going to prove to all that regardless of whether a person lives in a world where Satan is really the ruler or whether God is the ruler, Regardless of those two environments, man will always choose evil because at his heart is evil. So it has nothing to do with environment or, or um, uh, opportunity. God is going to prove to everyone once and for all, having locked Satan up for a thousand years, uh, that's all he'll need to do to prove this. He knows that, that man will still rebel. We still think that we won't. If God is on the throne, we'll be good people. Even, even the unregenerate will think to themselves at that time, if God's on the throne, we're going to be good angels. But the Bible says that in the root, the heart of man is deception. We're, we're bound with it. It's, it's part of our old nature. Because even though, even during the millennial reign, there will be uprisings from unregenerate man, and the only hope for man is to be born again, to be saved, to be saved. That's why Jesus will have to rule with a rod of iron, because man is rebellious. He's rebellious. His heart is deceitful and wicked above all things. Who can know it? The Bible says in the Psalms, there's no one good. There's none that, do, that does good. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. There's none that do good. That's why we need to be born again. But notice in verse 4, it says, And I saw thrones and them that sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. And these thrones, we believe, could be the 24 elders. It could be the disciples themselves. We looked at these 24 elders in Revelation 4 and 5, these representatives of the church. So it could be these these uh, 24 elders, and it also could be the disciples. What did Jesus say in Matthew to his disciples? Peter answered and said, See, we have left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, in other words, in the millennial reign, Peter, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones. And what are they going to be doing? Judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses and brothers or sisters for my sake will receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. In Luke 22, but you are those who have continued with me in my trials, and I bestow upon you a kingdom, he says to his disciples, just as my Father has bestowed one upon me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my, in, in, in my kingdom. We're going to eat and drink at the table in a few minutes. And you're going to sit on the thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And then he says in verse 4 that he saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God who had not worshipped the beast or his image. We looked at that in Revelation 13. They didn't receive the mark on their foreheads, but they died a martyr's death. Who are these people? It's none other than the tribulation saints. We know that's who they are. That's who they are. In fact, in Revelation 7 and verse 14, it says, uh, John answered or asked his, um, or one of the elders answered and says, Who are these arrayed in white robes and where did they come from? And John said to this angel, Sir, you know. 
And he said to me, These are those who came out of great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. The tribulation saints will receive their new bodies at the beginning of the millennial reign of Christ. And somewhere also in that time period, the Old Testament saints as well. You can read that in Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 and 13 specifically. The Old Testament saints will be resurrected too. So now in the millennium we'll have the happy throng of all of redeemed mankind. The Old Testament believers who are looking forward to Christ coming, believed in him. And then those who of us right now who have died in Christ, we will all be there together finally. And those who died in the tribulation period, they will all be together. Verse 5, it says, But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. But the rest of the dead, now these are the wicked dead. Those who are righteous are going to live during the thousand years, but and that's called the first resurrection. And there are many stages or phases of this first resurrection. We'll look at that in a few moments. But these, these are believers in the millennium, but the rest of the dead did not live again until a thousand years were finished. That's what we would call the second resurrection, which is not a resurrection that you and I are going to be a part of. The second resurrection or the Time of condemnation is going to be when those who are raised, and we'll look at this next week, those, the wicked dead who have died without Christ, they will be raised with a new body and they will stand at the white throne judgment where they will be judged and sent to the lake of fire. They will have bodies that will be able to withstand the torment of the flame for eternity. But you and I will receive bodies that can withstand eternity, but we will stand in God's presence for eternity without sickness, without disease. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul said, But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. Notice, first it's Jesus. He was the firstfruits of the resurrection, of the first resurrection. He was the firstfruits... For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as all Adam, all in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, and then afterward those who are Christ at his coming. And so we see that there are at least three and maybe even four stages of this first resurrection. We already looked at um, some of them. Christ's resurrection, bodily, physically changed, that was the first. He was the first fruits. We know at the rapture of the church, we who are alive and remain, and the saints who died before us, they will be raised. That is another phase of the first resurrection. And then we'll see the resurrection of the tribulation saints that we're reading about right now, these ones that had been beheaded for the cause of Christ that didn't take the mark of the beast. They are also going to be resurrected. And there'll probably be even another resurrection of mortal believers at the end of the millennium, whoever are alive at that point. And blessed and holy, verse 6, are those, is he who has part in the first resurrection. And see, you and I, because we are a part of that number two there, when the rapture of the church occurs, you and I will be part of the first resurrection. We will be resurrected. And then later on, after the tribulation, those tribulation saints who died for the cause of Christ, will be resurrected as well in new bodies, in new bodies. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection over such the second death has no power. The second death. Because after the second resurrection, <laughs> the second resurrection, you won't find that phrase in the Bible, okay? I'm adding that phrase to it because when we think of the first resurrection, it includes really all the saints of all time. But the second resurrection is the time of condemnation, the rising to condemnation that Jesus spoke about in John 5. What did he say? 
He says, do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, that is the first resurrection. That, That really includes all of those people. And then there's a thousand years. And then Jesus says after that, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Notice a resurrection of condemnation. That means that when we look next week at the white throne judgment, that all the dead in Christ will be raised again and resurrected and they will be judged and then they will be sent to the lake of fire. That is not an easy thing to look at, is it? But that is the truth. That is the truth. Don't be upset with God if he seems like this mean, nasty, heavenly father. Again, he sends no one. You choose. Isn't that the most loving thing you can do? Is to give somebody a choice? Isn't that what love is? It's a choice, isn't it? I choose to love you. Even though you hurt me, I choose to love you. It's a choice. It's a determination. It's an act, isn't it? Love is an act, not just the physical part. That's every, anybody can do that. But real love is an act. It's an action. I choose to love you. I choose to obey. I choose to stay in this. That's what love is. And that's the, that's the decision that God has given to every living person. Choose life or death. Make your decision. Make your election and your your calling and your election sure. It's so important that we do that, folks. 